Well, good morning again. We're glad that you could join us on this Lord's Day. Um, if you are new to New Life Church, um, we're glad that you chose to be with us and we'd love to let you know more about the church. Uh, please be um, finding one of the elders or come and speak to us and we can let you know more about the church and ways that um, we can minister to you. Um, so please, please be willing to do that. We've been studying the book of First John over the last couple of months, and we are coming to the end of chapter 3. So if you would turn with me to First John chapter 3, this morning we are going to be looking at verse 18 to verse 24. And here in our passage this morning, John is in the second cycle of applying the, the three tests of what Biblical, authentic Christianity looks like. And remember, we've already seen the moral test, which is obviously of obedience. We've looked at the relational test, whether we love the brethren, whether we love each other. And then the third test is the doctrinal test, whether our faith is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So John begins this chapter with those wonderful words of assurance of the Father's wonderful love for his children. And in this section about love that we've been looking at, he addresses us as, as brethren. Look at verse 13, he mentions the word brethren there. And in verse 18, he mentions the word little children. And in our text, um, he calls us beloved in verse 21, which we're going to look at this morning. He calls us beloved to remind us that we are loved by God and, of course, by, by the Apostle John. Um, so here, I believe that John's main point is to assure the children of God of their standing before God, of who they are. Remember, who they are and what they are. And, of course, as well as to encourage them and to urge them to continue in their faith, continue in obedience and continue in love. So we're going to read from verse 18 to verse 24, if you would follow with me. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And by this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in them. And by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray before we go into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these wonderful words of encouragement. And I do pray, Lord, that for us sitting here and hearing and listening to your word this morning, we would be encouraged. We would be reassured of our faith. We would be encouraged in our faith. Lord, I'm sure that there are people here amongst us who perhaps their hearts are accusing them this morning, or the devil is accusing them this morning. 
And I pray, Lord, as we look at this passage, we would see the cure for an accusing heart. That we would understand who we are and what we are in Christ. And that we would live that in our community. And we would display that in our family and the neighborhoods where you put us. And the workplace that we put us. That we would make a difference for our Savior, for our God, for our King, who has adopted us into his family. Just as we prayed earlier, Lord, we're not here by coincidence. We're not here by chance. Lord, you have brought us here to make a difference for your glory. And may we be confident in this task that you've given to us because of the confidence we have in the relationship with the King of this universe. We are your children. You are our God. Help us to know this morning and to love the fact that we are privileged people. So we pray for your blessings. Teach us, Lord. Open our eyes to the truths of your word this morning. And help us not just to be the hearers of your word, but to be the doers as well. And we ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So last night at our Potluck Fellowship, we introduced some of the people to one of my favorite theologians, Jonathan Edwards. He lived and preached during one of the great revivals in the history of America during the 1700s. And Edwards' preaching was very strong. It was very biblical. It was very direct to the point. And he preached a message called, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You can Google that and you can download it and you can read it and I encourage you to do that. still a very, very famous sermon. But many people said it was like, while they were hearing his sermon, it was was like he was literally dangling the sinner over the the gaping fires of hell on a a spider web. You know, his preaching was so powerful. His preaching was, was so strong because it called people to the to the most purest kind of repentance. There was nothing wishy washy about his preaching. It demanded a response. It called for obedience. He called for people to forsake their sin and to embrace holiness. And of course, during that time of strong biblical preaching, there was what they call the Great Awakening. It was a revival that happened, that burst onto the scene as people fell under the conviction as they repented of their their sins and they embraced the gospel. And then, of course, the issue of assurance became, became a major issue that had to be dealt with. And these people were so were literally so overwhelmed by the demands of the gospel to live a holy life, to repent of their sins, to believe in Christ, to obey, to follow Him, to pursue holiness. Of course, it was very natural for them to to question whether they truly were saved because some of them fell short and some of them sinned during those times and they doubted whether they truly were converted. And in response to that, In the year 1746, Jonathan Edwards wrote his classic book called A Treatise of Religious Affection, um, or short, The Religious Affections. And this monumental book was directed at this matter of evidence for true conversion, what a true Christian truly 
looks like and what they should feel. Um, It was, of course, a great help for those people who were wondering about their salvation because the standard was so high at that point for Christian living, people were tempted to doubt their salvation, tempted to wonder whether they could reach that level. But Edwards concluded that the accurate proof of salvation was the presence of holy affection. And he kept on using that term throughout the book, holy affection. And he said in this book, a true and faithful Christian does not make holy living an accidental thing. It is his great concern. As the business of the soldier is to fight, so the business of the Christian is to be like Christ. Another way to say that is that a true Christian has a passion for righteousness. He has a a zeal for holiness. And what he was saying was exactly from the scriptures. And Edward said that there were true conversion, where, where a true conversion takes place, there is a new nature, exactly what the scriptures were teaching. There's a new inner man. We don't live in the flesh anymore. And that new inner man has a passion to live to please God. He has a passion for holiness. And he isn't always what he should be. He doesn't always say what he should say. He doesn't always think what he should think, but he has a passion toward holiness. And so Edward says, true salvation is demonstrated in holy affections. This weekend you will see people with a lot of passion, a passion for fast cars, as the Grand Prix starts. But what is your passion this morning? I'm glad you're here with us and not watching the Grand Prix. Do you have a passion for holy affection? And Edwards was concerned about Satan counterfeiting the the true conversion with a false conversion. Um, And he showed us how we could distinguish. He said that people can be struck by the gospel, they can be drawn to the gospel, and they can have some kind of positive reaction to the gospel, like remember the soils that Jesus spoke about in the parable of the farmer, and yet they can come short of what true, genuine, saving faith is. They can have some experiences, but they can still come short. And the main point of his classic is that you know when the conversion is real by the person's holy affections. Here's another quote he wrote in the book. He said, Grace planted in the heart in a new birth is a principle of holy action and always produces an abiding change of nature in a true convert. Therefore, Whenever a profession of conversion is not accompanied by holiness of life, it must be understood that the individual concern is not a Christian. End quote. And of course, Jonathan Edwards didn't invent that idea. He simply drew that idea out of what the Bible teaches. And you know, James said the same thing. He said, without works, there is no real saving faith. And those works would be the works which he calls holiness of life. So how do you know you're a Christian? And Edwards would say, holy affections. Write that down if you take your notes. You don't look back to a feeling. You don't look back to an experience. 
You don't look back to something you remember doing, even perhaps your baptism or the Lord's table. You don't, you don't look to those things that you do. You look to Christ. And how do we know we are saved then? Well, the Apostle John speaks to us in this passage about this very issue. Look what he says in verse 19. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. He says, by this, by this, drop down, look at verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, that word is mentioned again, by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given to us. So the passage has this little phrase, by this. It appears in verse 16. Look there in verse 16. It's also in verse 19 and in verse 24. So John is telling us. He's giving us the means by how. He's giving us the reasons we can know we are saved. How we know someone is saved or not. By this. He mentions it. And to what exactly does he refer? Well, we're going to look at four things that are in our text this morning. And my first point is in verse 18. The first component of a religious affection, a holy affection that is manifest in a true salvation, the first component is the love for our brothers, our love for Christians. And all you have to do is back up to verse 18. He says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We shall know by this that we are of the truth. And now we've gone through the passage before, which deals with what kind of love that is the mark of a Christian. Go back to verse 10. Look at chapter 3, verse 10 in your Bibles. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who doesn't practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Look at verse 11. This is the message which you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who doesn't love abides in death. And this is just reiterated what we were learning when we went through this, this whole passage before. And it's summed up wonderfully in verse 18 in our passage this morning with a call to this type of, of love which is biblical, which is true Christianity. He says it's not just in word, but it's not just in something in, that we, we talk about in our tongues, but in our actions, in our deeds. It's demonstrated by what we do, not just by what we say. This is a result of what has already taken place in our heart. This is a result of us being right with God. In fact, if you want to know how it's demonstrated, go, go back to verse 16. He says in verse 16, By this we know that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is sacrificial love. Remember, we looked at it last week. This is the, the perfect, uncondition, the unconditional agape love. Verse 17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So this love is manifested not in what we say, 
But what we sacrifice, what we give up, what we give to the Lord. If we have something and a brother has a need and we give them what we have to meet this need, that's evidenced of this faith that you have in the Son of God. Especially if it comes down to giving up our lives for the brethren. We do that. You may have heard of that missionary who was killed in the Andaman Islands this week as he was serving one of these unreached tribes. And he sacrificed his life for the sake of the gospel. He wanted to share the love of Christ with his unreached group that had never heard the gospel before. This is the high-mindedness of that love that, that the scriptures call us to. It's not a shallow type of love. It's not a, a superficial type of love. It's not a selective type of love. It's a kind of love that is abandoned to the, to the sense that it yields up everything for the sake of Christ. And this is a uniqueness of this love. This is not a love that the world will demonstrate. The world will demonstrate a very selfish love, a love that will only affect them, that will benefit them. That is not the type of love that the apostles is talking about. The apostle Peter talked about it. He commanded it. The writer of the book of Hebrews as well. The apostle Paul affirmed this in many places in his writings. This is the mark of true salvation. We are to have this type of love. This is a mark of a true Christian. And if you know someone who says they believe in Jesus, and they say someone, perhaps they say they've received Jesus or they've accepted him, whatever language they they use, maybe they've prayed a prayer or they call themselves Christian, you can first and foremost and most importantly determine the validity of, of their claim by how they love, by how sacrificially they love, how involved or perhaps how passionate they are, how affectionate they are toward other believers, toward other believers. If they do not attend a church, if they have no desire to be with the people of God, if they're not consumed with the joys of, of Christian fellowship, you have every right to question the validity of their salvation. And that's what we have just learned in the passage before. And it's now rehearsed for us again in the text this morning. I mean, how passionate are you towards the brethren? Do you love coming together? Do you love the brothers? Are you willing to serve them? Are you willing to sacrifice for them? Are you willing to to minister for the sake of the body of Christ? That's the question that is being put here towards us. And true believers do this. True believers love coming together. True believers enjoy home groups. They enjoy coming together, praying with each other because of the love for Christ, the love for the brothers. The second point this morning is the way of assurance. In verse 19, it says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. 
So remember when John says by this, he's referring back to verse 17 and to verse 18, where he talks about this love that's expressing itself in practical deeds. As we saw before, John's point is, is that the self-sacrificing love is the mark, is the evidence of what a, of a true Christian is. Whereas the opposite, the, self, the self-love or the self-hatred is, is a mark of the world, of what the unbeliever looks like. So John is saying in this verse, when you are troubled by doubts, and you are troubled by this self-condemnation, don't focus on your failures. That's what he's saying. After all, what, what Christian hasn't failed? Every single one of us have failed at times. And what he's saying is focus on the many times that God's love has flowed through you since you became a believer. Let these acts of self-sacrifice be evidence that you are in the truth and you are of the truth. And he's telling us to stop doubting. Stop doubting your salvation. Of course, you know, at times it's helpful to examine our failures and to learn from them. Now, why did I sin in, in that way? Why did I say that thing that I, that I shouldn't have said? And how can I avoid that sin in the future? Those are, are helpful questions. But it's not helpful to, to dwell on your sins. It's not helpful to become introspective to the point where you become depressed. We've got to know your, your own heart here. That is, that is helpful. But there are personalities and, of course, there are other factors where people are prone to become depressed. And some are, by nature, perfectionists. And even after they've confessed their sins. But we should maintain, a, of course, a sensitive conscience. We shouldn't tolerate any disobedience or sin. The Bible tells us that. But at the same time, we need to accept our human limitations. And our our focus, our overall focus should be on what God is doing in our lives. Not looking at our failures, but looking to God. And probably, you know, if I were to ask you, name five times that you have failed this week. I'm sure you wouldn't have a problem in in listing those failures off the top of of your mind right now. But if I, if I asked you the, the opposite question, name five times that you have experienced God's victory this week, you'd have, probably have a harder time to, to remember those five times where you have been victorious. That's just our nature. And John is saying, look at the specific deeds of love that God has done through you and be assured of your salvation. And if you can't think of any such deeds... This is the problem that he's addressing. If you can't think of any loving deeds that you have done, then you may need to examine whether you truly are or not in Christ. If you can't think of any of the sacrificial acts of love that you have performed, perhaps you're not a Christian. If you have experienced God's love in Christ, then of course you should be loving others. You should be serving the brethren. But if you never see opportunities to show God's love to others, then you're too self-focused. You're too selfish. You're too self-absorbed. And many people sadly come to church with this mindset. They come to church thinking, I need to get my needs met. 
I'm here for myself. And they live each day with a, with a selfish focus. And they are what people call consumers. They're here to consume. They're here to see what they can get. They just want to consume. They're not willing to contribute. They're not willing to, to serve. They're not willing to do these acts of love. They just want to get as much as they can. And of course, they became, become frustrated and they can become depressed because people are not meeting their needs and they can become one of these members that, that are not happy. But the proper way to come to church or to live each day is, is with the opposite mindset. Lord, please use me to meet somebody's need. Use me to be a blessing to somebody else. And when you live that way, you find that the Lord is willing to meet your needs. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things shall be added unto you. Delight in the Lord first, and then he will give you the desires of your heart. Remember, Galatians chapter 6 tells us, Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And when you live to serve others, when you live to love others, it will come back to you. It will come back to you in a wonderful way. And John is telling us, we will know by this, by our loving deeds, that we are in the truth. And we will assure our hearts before him. So when Satan sees you beginning to allow your heart he accuses you about your past sins he accuses you of the things that you've done in the past and of course we find ourselves in a worse situation we start to just think of all these negative things and all these things that we don't want to remember and we forget when we confess our sins the Bible says the Lord casts our sins as far as the east is from the west that's Unlimited, folks. You can never meet each other. The east is as far as from the west in an infinite way. And the Lord doesn't remember our, our sins if we've confessed Him. But it's Satan who will accuse us and will bring these lies into our minds. And we will find ourselves in a worse situation. We'll perhaps find ourselves, well, we're no longer praying. Perhaps we find ourselves not wanting to read the Scriptures anymore. Because of this guilt complex that we have. And where do we turn in a situation like this? You know, if your conscience is saying to you, you know, if you're a real Christian, why would you do that? Why would you say that if you're a real Christian? Why would you talk like that? And your conscience is saying to you, if you're a real Christian, why would you desire so much affirmation from other people? You know, if you're a real Christian... Why do you act so pridefully? Why would you speak to a person? Why would you be angry like that? Or whatever it is, however your conscience accuses you. If you were a real Christian, why would you have that in your life? And your conscience can bring you to that point where you lose this assurance of your salvation. And what do we do? Where do we go? And do you say, well, well, wait a minute. I was baptized. I remember the day I was baptized. I remember the pastor who baptized me. Wait a minute. 
I remember the day that I, that I walked the aisle. Or, or wait a minute, I remember the day that I put up my hand. I remember the day I said a prayer. Or, or hold on, I remember the day I write, wrote my name on a card after, after an invitation. I mean, do you go to those type of things to assure your heart? This is, this is not what John is saying. We don't go to things that we've done because it doesn't help. Your conscience will keep saying to you, well, look at what a hypocrite you are. Look at what a hypocrite you are. Where do we go to? What do you do with the problem of an accusing heart? That's the question this morning. And John helps us in verse 20. Look at verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. So what we have to do when our heart condemns us is go to the Lord. Go to the Lord. When our heart condemns us, look to the omnipotence of our God. Look to the greatness of of the mercy of God. Look to the grace of God, what He has given you, not because you deserve it, but because of His grace. The only thing we deserve, folks, is hell. We have all sinned, the Bible tells us. We have all fallen short of God's glory. And the wages of that sin is death. We all deserve death. We all deserve the, 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 the torment in hell for our sins. But instead we have The grace of God for those of you who have repented of your sins. We have the mercy of God. We have what we don't deserve. And it tells us right here, God is greater than our heart. God knows our heart and He is greater than it. God knows all things because He is omniscient. He knows all things. We can hide stuff from from our wives. We can hide stuff from our from our husbands and our, and our children. But God knows all things. He knows your heart this morning. Look at the second thing we need to do in verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. This is a, this is a confident heart. This is the opposite of an accusing heart, isn't it? And why is that a comfort for an accusing heart? Because God knows everything there is to know about us, and He still loves us. There's not a gossip in the world that can tell God anything about you that God does not already know. No enemy of yours can disclose any secrets to God because God already knows it. He knows all about you. And this is good news. Because he still chooses to love us. He still chooses to love us. Someone once said, only God could love a human being. And that is so true, isn't it? Only God can love a human being. With all of our faults, with all of our sin, he still chooses to love us. That leads to my third point. Look at verse 22. Beloved, If our heart does not condemn us, in verse 21, we read that. If we get past that condemnation and we're walking in obedience and our conscience is not accusing us, but rather our conscience is defending us, 
our Christian life is as it should be, and we're walking in obedience, and we're walking in faithfulness, and we're no longer being self-condemned, this insecurity disappears, and what is it replaced with? What did the scripture say? It's replaced with confidence. And that confidence leads to two blessings. Two blessings. We see in verse 22, the blessing of answered prayer. And we see in verse 24, the blessing of an abiding relationship through the Spirit of God. Look at verse 22. It says, Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and we do what pleases Him. So remember, if, if our heart is no longer condemning us and we have confessed those sins and we are living in peace with God and we are enjoying His forgiveness because we are resting in the promise of God that all those sins that we have committed have been paid for in Christ. If we get past that and we get past those sins and we get past our accusing our conscience, we find ourselves with a confidence A confidence that causes us to rush into the presence of God and ask God whatever we need. And it tells us we will receive from Him. Of course, this is boldness. This is boldness. You don't hold, we don't need to hold anything back from, from God our Father. We have an open relationship with Him. Remember, He is our Father. We have the privilege of sitting at His table. That happens for those who are part of the family of God. We have a face-to-face relationship with God, like a a loving son to a loving father. He's not some, some God that's sitting on a throne in a castle far away where we cannot have any contact with Him. We have a personal relationship with Him. He is our Father. We are His children. And we can look into the face of God with freedom from fear. And we have freedom to ask and freedom to to give Him anything that's, that's in our hearts. Anything. It tells us anything we ask, we receive from Him. Obviously, we need to be asking according to His will. Otherwise, it's a selfish request, isn't it? We need to be asking for His perfect will to be done and for His glory to be done. Now, there's a story of a Roman emperor who was parading the streets of the capital in in a victory celebration. And Roman soldiers lined up the parade route um, to keep keep back all the, the masses, the cheering masses. And at one point along the route, there was a small platform where the, where the royal family was, was sitting. And as the emperor approached, his youngest son, who was just a little boy, he jumped down and he burrowed through the, the crowds and tried to run out to, to meet his father. And one of the guards who was in that row, he caught this little boy by the arm and he said, you can't do that. Don't you know who that is? That's the emperor. And the boy quickly replied, He may be your emperor, but he's my father. And John wants us to know that if we are God's children, we have this kind of confident access to the Father, to his presence. And Jesus says, ask and it shall be given to you. 
Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. The Bible says whatsoever we ask we receive of him. But of course there's a condition. You can have answers to prayers in your life if you keep his commandments. Look at verse 22. John adds there that the reason we receive whatever we ask because we keep his commandments and we do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Remember, God does not answer the prayers of the disobedience. Let me say that again. God does not answer the prayers of the disobedient. One of the best ways in the world to get your prayers answered is to know the scriptures and obey the scriptures. I mean, are you studying the scriptures? Do you know what God's commandments are? Ignorance is no excuse, folks. Ignorance is no excuse. We need to be obeying the word of God based on the very scriptures that we have been given to us. One of the commandments, look at verse 23. Are you believing in the Lord Jesus? Are you trusting in the Lord Are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? If you are obeying those commandments, it says, and do those things that are pleasing in His sight, then we can ask anything that we want. It's not just keeping His commandments, but finding out the things that please the Lord and obey Him. We want to do it out of love, not out of compulsion, because of our love for Him. And it may be, Things that he has not specifically commanded us, but those things that are pleasing to him, especially those gray areas that we talk about that are not mentioned. I mean, are we making choices that please the Lord? We honor God when we make these wonderful requests in our desire to please God. There's another story about a man who came to Alexander the Great. And he made an outrageous, unbelievable request. And to the astonishment of his lieutenants, Alexander the Great granted this man's request. And they couldn't believe their eyes. When he did it, they they questioned him. And Alexander said, I gave this to him because he honored me with the magnitude of his request. Do we honor God with the magnitude of our request? Do we believe that God will answer our prayers? Are we expecting great things from Him because we understand how great He is? I think when we get to heaven, we will be amazed at the things that we could have had from Him while we were on this earth if we had just asked. If we had just requested, of course, not things to consume upon our our own selfish lusts, but things that would have built the kingdom of God and things that would have honored Christ. James says in chapter 4, verse 2, you have not because you ask not. We have a perfect right to come to God with these hearts of ours and ask God to fill our hearts with His peace. If we're doing His will, 
If we're seeking to please Jesus in our, in our daily lives, then we have the privilege of going to our Father who wants to answer our prayers. My last point this morning is in verse 24. The way of abiding. John has already spoken about us abiding in Christ. But this is the first time that he has mentioned God's abiding in us. Which Jesus taught as well in the Gospels. Turn with me to John chapter 15 if you would. In John chapter 15... In verse 4, Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And then in John chapter 15, go down to verse 10. It says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So as in the Gospel of John, it's it's the same. It's the same truth here in our text this morning. Obedience is the condition of us abiding in Christ, of this abiding relationship. And as we walk in obedience to the Lord, we enjoy this close fellowship with Him and He with us. Now his life flows through us. It produces fruit that, that pleases him. And John adds in verse 24, look at the, the last part in, our, in verse 24 in, in 1 John chapter 3, that the way we know that he abides in us is by the Spirit whom he has given to us. John has already referred to the anointing that abides in us in in verse 27. But this is the first explicit mention of the Holy Spirit. It's mentioned clearly here. And John is saying that the Spirit's presence in our life is manifested objectively in our behavior. And we've mentioned that a few times, haven't we? Our belief affects our behavior. And John is saying it here. If God's Spirit is is living in us and abiding in us. It's manifested in our behavior. Now John starts in his commentary on 1 John. He writes and he says, So if we would assure our hearts when they accuse and condemn us, we must look for evidence of the Spirit's working, and particularly whether He is enabling us to believe in Christ, to obey God's commandments, and to love the brethren. So evidence of our salvation, of course, is the Spirit of God that motivates us to please the Lord. Holy affections. So Jonathan Edwards was saying, this is a holy affection. And of course, this is motivate, motivation for us to, to want to honor God. We are motivated to please God. We are motivated to obey His Word and do everything that we can possibly do to please our God. In 1 Corinthians 10, it says the same thing. In chapter 10, verse 31, Whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, you do it all to the glory of God. To say someone is a Christian and then they're disobedient, To say somebody is a Christian 
and they show no love for the church, no love for the brethren, to say somebody is a Christian and they don't have a, a desire for holy affection, for, for the glory of God, is going completely against this passage that we are reading this morning. To say someone is a Christian and they don't have a boldness and a freedom in pouring their heart out in prayer to the Lord is a contradiction to everything that's in this passage. How can you call yourself a Christian and the Spirit of God is not working in your life to honor God? You call yourself a Christian and all you want to do is to consume the pleasures of this world upon your own lusts. Then you do not have Christ in your life. You are without Christ. You need Christ. You need, to forget, you need the forgiveness of your sins that only Christ can give you. Well, let me conclude this morning. The cure for an accusing heart is to make sure your faith is anchored in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's the only hope we have, folks. Everything else in this world is temporary and will give you some form of satisfaction for a moment. But the only permanent hope we have is anchored in the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. If your trust is in Christ, God has promised you eternal life. And he has promised never to allow you to be snatched out of his hand. We read it this morning in Romans 8. Nothing can separate true Christians from the love of God. A man once told D.L. Moody that he was worried because he didn't feel like he was saved. And Moody asked him, Was Noah safe in the ark? And the man replied, Yes, of course he was. Well, what made him feel safe? His feeling or the ark? Well, the point is this. If you're in Christ, it's not about your feelings. It's not what you're feeling. Your feelings don't save you from God's judgment. It's Christ who saves you from the wrath to come. It's Christ who died on that cross for the penalty of your sins. It's Christ who paid the propitiation for your sins. It's not your feelings. It's not your emotions. It's what Christ has done. We are safe in Christ. And faith puts you on the ark. Faith makes sure that you are on board. And it's Christ that keeps you there. It's not your feelings. And the problem was that the false teachers during this time claimed to believe in Jesus, but their claim was just empty words. You couldn't see it in their actions. You couldn't see it in their faith. You couldn't see it in their prayers. You couldn't see it in their love for each other. By their deeds, they denied Christ. And so throughout 1 John here, the apostle gives us these tests of what true, authentic faith looks like. Do you obey God's commandments? Do you love the brethren? Do you believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, including His sacrificial death on the cross? And remember, it's not about perfection. 
It's about direction. We will fail. But thank God we can go to the Son. And it tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We often fall short. We often fail. And that's why John is writing these verses to us. Do you see evidence of God's working in your life because you love the brethren? Do you see answers to your prayers? Don't let your heart accuse you falsely this morning. Do you enjoy fellowship with Christ as you live to please Him in the body of Christ? Don't let your heart accuse you this morning. If this is true of you, know that God is greater than your heart. He wants you to be confident in His love for you. He wants to assure you that you are His child this morning. If you don't have this assurance, please come and speak to me after the service and let me show you how you can know for sure whether you are saved or not. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his immeasurable, great, merciful love that was given to us, that was shed abroad in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, that he saved us while we were still slaves to us, and Lord, while we were running away from you in rebellion, you called us to be your children. You pulled us out of this pit so that we could be in the light and we could enjoy this freedom. We can enjoy this peace. We can enjoy this love that covers us as your children. Thank you for this wonderful gift that we get to enjoy, the gift of your salvation. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to secure this salvation for us that we don't have to die and pay for our own sins, Lord. Thank you for Jesus who paid for our sins. Lord, if there are people amongst us this morning who don't know, if they were to die today, if they would enjoy this assurance, if they would enjoy heaven, if they would enjoy this fellowship with God, if they were to die today, they have no idea where they would go. I pray, Lord, that you would Show them Christ this morning. That the Spirit of God would grant them repentance this morning. That they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. We pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God would help us this week. Not to look at our failures, but to look forward. Look ahead to our Savior who has promised that He will finish what He has started in us. And we have this wonderful assurance, Lord, that you are not done with us. We have this wonderful promise, Lord, that we will one day be with you perfect. We will no longer have the struggle of this world and this flesh and this sin, but we will be perfectly with you. Oh, Lord, come. Come, Lord, we look forward to that day. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. Help us not just to be the hearers, but to be the doers of your word. 
for the sake of your great name and for the joy of your people, we ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.